Liz is going to be part of San Diego Design Week inspiration. And as far as what inspires her work and her architecture for, for this year's San Diego Design Week theme. Elizabeth Carmichael found an eco house as a source for ecologically responsible architecture and development. Eco houses concern for buildings impact on the environment and the positive benefits for occupants, community and developers at the forefront of their practice. She conducts eco labs, learn, apply, build as a hands-on approach for educating the public on implementing sustainable practices, serves on the board of directors for San Diego Green Building Council as vice president interviewed in articles and podcasts and honored as a San Diego woman of influence in construction, commercial, real estate, and design. Eco house equals ecological habitat of urban sustainable experiences. Liz, what are your first recollections of experiencing architecture? I really started getting into it as a 12-year-old when my parents moved from one state to another and ended up purchasing a house that was being built. It was in the framing stage. Uh And I was lucky enough to go into the meetings with the builder and get to see the plans and uh, just really sparked my interest. And from there, I started at the grocery store getting the little floor plan magazines in the checkout aisle as a kid. So instead of Team Beat, I was getting architecture magazines at the grocery store. Uh, (laughs) And where did you move? Well, started off moving all around New England area in the Northeast. And then we lived in Reno, Nevada when I was in middle school. And then went back to the Northeast after that. So I graduated in Massachusetts. Okay. But the house was in Massachusetts then? The first house actually was in Maine. Okay. In Brunswick, Maine. And, but moving around actually, I think also really inspired the interest and passion for it as well, because every time we moved, we're looking for a new place to live and going into a lot of different homes and new surroundings, new friends, new socially, everywhere had a little bit of different social construct oh. that you're thrown into. And so I feel like I definitely gained a more worldview from that, from moving around than some of my friends and relatives who grew up in the same place and still live in the same place their whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Pittsburgh and there aren't that many people that I get there are some people that move from there. Maybe they moved to Florida or something or like a neighboring state. They don't typically move to, doesn't seem like. You retired, they moved to Florida. Pardon me? We retired, they moved to Florida. (laughs) Yeah. And if they're from Chicago, they moved to Arizona. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And if we're in California, we just stay where we are. Or, or yes, we're lucky enough to yeah. live where yeah. people want to retire. Yeah. Or they sell everything and move there. <laughs> yeah. So what are three classic buildings that you like and why? My ultimate favorite building is 
Nutrance Kaufman House in Palm Springs. Okay. That's what, that's my ultimate favorite. Also love John Lautner's The Shates Goldstein House in Los Angeles. The concrete triangular route. Yeah. But then also really was inspired in 2008 with the whole Bird's Nest Stadium and the bubble swim building in Beijing. Those are really just interesting and inspiring buildings to me. And that what, and why do you like them? The Coffin House, I can't, I just love the indoor-outdoor aspect of it, the clean lines, the minimalism. It's just, I think it's just the perfect building. I love it. I love how it was timeless back then. It seems timeless now. And I just, I love all the lines in it, how it sits against the desert mountains. It's just beautiful. Yeah. I didn't see it until recently when I went to Modernism Week. I went to Modernism Week and then Low and Windows invited me to a party, but then they also had a ticket of the tour. So I saw like a lot of things from a double decker bus. I you could kind of see over the fence. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That one's nice because it's set up on the hill from the from the street, so you can see it. Whereas yeah. a lot are a lot of the really great mid-century homes are hidden behind fences or very Mature hedges, so they're exactly there's there were those Albert Bray houses that are yes yeah I was lucky enough to work for Don Wexler out there when he was alive oh yeah yeah so just the he was just a classic guy he was around during I would say the Mad Men era of offices (laughs) he could smoke cigarettes and drink martinis in the office. But he was so great. He really taught me, I would say, design through detail, like Uh really looking at the detailing and how that assemblage creates the design and the real minimalist look that they were going for. Yeah. So how long, when did you work for him? In 2002, because I I remember it was right after 9-11. And then I moved to San Diego a couple of years after. Oh, okay. So first you moved to Palm Springs and then yeah, and then San Diego. Okay. And then did you have an undergraduate degree in architecture, or you went? Or... Yeah, I I went to UMass. I started at UMass for engineering, actually. Uh huh. And then I actually dropped out for a little while and then restarted and ended up in architecture. I had moved down to New Orleans. My gosh, Liz, you've been everywhere. (laughs) And they're totally wild, different, like I was saying, just the social aspects of the different areas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely wide, wide widening how everyone lives. Yeah. I first moved to California in 97 and first had a job up in Pasadena working at an architecture firm, doing commercial work Yeah, in around the Los Angeles area. I was there too. 
during that time. I graduated from Cal Poly in 88, and then we were in Venice Beach from 88 to 99, or 89 to 99, we were in Venice. I started my practice in 94, believe it or not. But anyway, when you have three kids, what do you like about being an architect? I would say that the process of creating something new and different every time is probably my favorite aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And then seeing the vision of the finished product is a reward that I think is actually very special to be an architect because you're creating the manifestation of your idea and then it's actually being built in real life. It's an amazing process. Yeah. Yeah. And then what do you want to say about the future of architecture? I would say I'll frame it, I'll frame it this way. For women, I think it's no longer a good old boys club. Mm-hmm. I think, especially now the universities are, I think, relatively even in gender diversity. And then we have more legends like Zaha Hadid that give us real standing, I think, in, in the profession. So I know when I graduated, it was me and I think one other woman that had graduated during our semester. So, oh, well, and all other men. So I know it it definitely, I feel it has, the tide has changed. How many people were in your program? I had graduating class, because like at the beginning, 200. Yeah. Say, and then I had graduated in the January semester. Oh, so there was only for out of eight. There was only uh, maybe 15 of us. Oh, wow. Really but I'm sure that the spring, yeah, the spring yeah. graduating class was a lot bigger, but I don't remember offhand. Yeah. Yeah, I think somebody, somebody said the other, I guess it must have been somebody that I graduated with. Oh, it was Michael Vallon, who isn't on this one He's in another podcast that I'm doing on all the airstreams because we took that trip together. But I went to architecture school with him and he said, really, he goes, there were only, he remember, he remembers that there were maybe 10 of us, which I think that there were, there were only about 10 of us. And then we graduated with 75 at Cal Poly Pomona. So in like we graduated with 75 and maybe 10 of us, 10 of us were women or maybe a little bit less than that. From what I've kept in contact, all of us are architects. I think we're all licensed of those 10. There's maybe only one or two people who didn't get licensed from like that group of men. And I think that they they just didn't even stay in architecture. I think they went into something else. Yeah, I think that's pretty common though, especially, I don't know about now, but I know like when I was going for my license, there was, I was looking up stats and only 25% of graduates actually were in architecture at the time. So it seemed really low. Yeah. I went into different fields. But. Yeah. Yeah. And I know during the recessions, I don't know. I think that for, I think that for mothers in architecture, I think that we're still, I think those statistics are probably pretty low. 
the equity by design and how that takes away from from some of your success in architecture. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I mean success. It's a it is a very time consuming career. I I spend way more than forty hours a week and so to juggle both it's takes a superwoman for sure. (laughs) So what inspires you? You know, or what inspires your work or how does your work inspire others? And you can answer it in whatever way. Yeah. I think I'm inspired a lot now with Geophilic design. We've been really always gravitated towards it, but it's so defined now that it's really fun and interesting to incorporate different aspects of it and really analyze the site and what was there originally and what you can bring into the project as part of a human to nature connection. Uh-huh. Thing has been inspiring for me. For the acronym for our firm, the Ecohabitats of and Sustainable Experiences. We always start our projects thinking about what is the experience for the user, for the end occupant, and then also for the community around it. And sending out to the planet in general, like how can we make our buildings positive? in the smallest ways and the biggest ways. And Liz, can can you define biophilic design? Because I'm sure that a lot of people have heard about it, but I know that like the one she's at Harvard and she's talking about the silkworms and and spinning spinning kind of these silkworm things. And how would you define it or how would you define it in your practice? Well, I'm really inspired by even like the building that had the algae panels and they were getting energy from the algae, things like that. Ours are probably not quite that intense, but thinking about how we can bring urban agriculture into the project, uh-huh. light and air, and what are the patterns of the natural surroundings of the plants and animals that are there. Um, how did the indigenous people of the area live? What can we, how can we be inspired or incorporate their habitats? And it's, it is hard to bring it into our standard construction industry, but it's, that's part of the challenge. I think the more we bring attention to it for clients, they also get inspired by it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't, we didn't get a chance to go to Chaco Canyon because it was too wet to take an Airstream back in there, which this is like the second time that I haven't been able to go there because, of, because it's been too wet to get anything back there. But we did go to Mesa Verde. So we decided okay, let's go to Mesa Verde instead. And so we went up there and then we didn't go to the well-known one because there's only so many tickets. You have to get tickets in advance. Mm-hmm. Kind of a spur of the moment trip. So we were able to go into to more of the 
the longhouse. And so there were a lot of, they have a lot of pavilions there that have the, the different pit houses and then how the progress of the pit house into the cliff dwellings. And then yeah, yeah. when we had uh, Michael Vallon used to, he used to be over by the mountains in New Mexico before they moved to Madrid right now. And that was by Bandelier National Monument, which then you have, you know, the caves and then they actually, they were like condos and then they had wood trellises and things that were out yeah the location of it on that hill on that mountain and it's different relationship to the sun and solar orientation because it gets cold up there the pit houses being underground embedded right it's like you're gonna have this constant temperature from being embedded into the ground and then as opposed to like being out in full sun and the way that you can live and I, we have a wonderful climate that we can easily gravitate from inside to outside it's hot now but in, i don't i don't have air conditioning in my house we don't and we're in la mesa so people are like oh you're inland it's so hot I, really it's only hot a few weeks out of the year yeah no i, I feel like even when it's hot here if you're in the shade it's totally tolerable when we complain about you it being humid here it's so not humid compared to the country yeah new orleans i don't my parents live in the midwest and they have been and i just when i go there i'm just like oh my gosh because we'll actually take walks within their community and everybody is driving by in cars and they're and they know who we are they know who we are. They're like, oh yeah, they're Betsy and Cliff's kids, and they're walking <laughs> because we need to. We need to walk. We're like, gosh, let's take advantage of it. But everybody else, what are they doing outside walking? Yeah, because of the humidity and the bug, right? The bug, right? The bugs. Yeah, we're very lucky that unless you're in the woods here, you're it's a relatively bug-free, mosquito-free environment. So. So is there anything else that inspires your work? Or working or inspires on you or inspires you? Yeah, I think just bringing in, thinking about just how people are going to live and what we can do to minimize their impact on the environment, providing urban agriculture, even on big apartment buildings, we're doing urban agriculture on the roofs and uh, trying to change a lot of the projects we do have affordable housing and maybe in an urban food desert. So how do we incorporate giving a healthy lifestyle right where they live? Yeah. That's yeah. really inspiring to me. Yeah. And seeing actually the, the tenants who just take it on and have amazing gardens out of it. Um, there's one project that's a senior living here. They they had a relatively big community garden. They ended up extending it all the way down their entire site setback uh-huh. and taking advantage of every little empty space they had to yeah. expand the community garden because it was so utilized. 
And so when we're talking about urban agriculture, we're talking about gardens. For people that are listening, because there's a lot of people that are going to be listening to this. And then and then also, what was the other term that you used was food desert? Desert, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the food desert is typical urban areas where there's a lack of um, regular grocery stores where people have either the Dollar Tree or the 99 cent store or or even just a little corner liquor store yeah. where they're getting food from and it's a lot of processed foods less fresh fruits and vegetables and so it has an impact on their overall well-being and the there's just such benefits not only just for what you're actually eating but the benefits of actually harvesting cultivating your own food putting your hands in dirt connecting it gives you connection also with your neighbors i thesis is that the human nature relationships actually bond and make stronger the human to human relationships as well so i think the more you can bring nature in the more commonality we have uh and it actually strengthens community as well. One of the things that what I'm doing these these four houses for, for a couple, but they have a family-owned business, but their business is installing fuel tanks and doing these convenience stores that are in with the gas station. And she said that she said, yeah, she goes, I there's actually, there's a lot of people that are getting all of their food from the convenience store at the gas station. Not only is there not a lot of good food there, it's super expensive. Yeah, yeah, it's super expensive. And so the food is of poor quality. Sorry, AM, PM. It's of poor quality and it's expensive. And the last thing that you want to do to feed your family is low quality food that's going to be expensive. I know that I did a community garden when I was in Santa Monica. I took over a community garden. One of my friends gave me the community because there was a waiting list, but you could give the community garden. And and my joke about it is, and then I turned around and gave it to another person. And I'll put it in this blog, but but she she's great because she has continued it. And so she grows like these beautiful vegetables and fruit, which I would see other people making these amazing gardens because there were, and there were a lot of seniors that they're spending a lot of time on their garden and the vegetables are absolutely beautiful. And this is like 30 years ago. And even though I've been a garden, we've had gardens as a child, I had never seen a Brussels sprout. I didn't know the way Brussels sprouts actually grew. So I actually saw them grow. And then when I saw them in Trader Joe's, because Trader Joe's on the dock. That was like, I was like, hey, it's a Brussels sprout. I haven't seen those since we had the community garden. But uh, I'll put the the link to that garden and maybe you can yeah, send me some of your photos of the gardens so that I want to put a garden in my front yard because I have a pile of dirt from the addition and I wanted to do these blocks these raised beds, but I don't know where it can ever happen or not because it is Southern exposure. I've got too many on the Northern. We have a 
I live in a kind of older cottage on a canyon here in San Diego. And so we actually just put in a little side door from our kitchen so that we can have same thing, edible plants right outside the kitchen. Yeah. And take advantage of our little five foot side yard that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I do put side. You can even put things in pot. That's what I, I have a lot of pots for the herbs and stuff like that. And we try to grow other things. But it's funny with tomatoes. Like I actually get more tomatoes or like these volunteer tomatoes that just end up being in the pot than, than I do from any type of tomato. <laughs> you have a green thumb for tomatoes. You usually you have too many tomatoes. <laughs> I want to know. We have Janine in our context and clarity group. And she like always, have you ever seen her fruits and vegetables? Oh, on Facebook. Oh my gosh. They're just amazing. And she's in Phoenix. And I'm like, how do you get this stuff to grow there? And she's like a lot of water, a lot of water and a lot of fertilizer, but her stuff is, is pretty amazing. I don't know whether she composts. We have a compost bin, but we, we are not like, we're not stirring it a lot. We're dumping the stuff in there, but we're not stirring it all the time. We need, my daughter says, oh, you need the one that, that you can just turn, turn. Yeah. And yeah, but that wasn't the one that was available for. So you know what? Even, even compost piles that you just sit there and don't do anything, they eventually, you can still pull out good dirt off the bottom. Okay. There. It still take a little longer. <laughs> Okay, so is there any anything else? Thanks so much, Michelle. That was great. Yeah, thank you. They-